Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of John in the New Testament, the 15th, actually the 16th chapter. And we're going to take up where we left off last week. This section which we're looking at today has the most concentrated teaching on the Holy Spirit. Actually, the upper room discourse in the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters deal with the Holy Spirit. But we get more compact information about the work of the Holy Spirit in this passage which we're studying today than any other place in the Bible. Some people would disagree with me, and that's certainly your prerogative. And another place is the book of Romans, the 8th chapter. There are more references in that chapter to the Holy Spirit without giving much in-depth information about Him. So today, listen carefully and ask the Holy Spirit to be your teacher today and speak to you. He is the only teacher who makes us come alive to begin with. Jesus said, unless you're born of the water and the Spirit, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Holy Spirit is the one who gives us new life in Christ. Also, He's the one we've seen in chapter 14, verse 26 of John. He's the one who teaches us all things that He taught His apostles. And then last week, in the last two verses of the 15th chapter, we are told that Holy Spirit is the one who bears witness to Christ. And by association, we too, knowing Christ in our heart by the Holy Spirit, will be people who effectively witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. With that as introduction, let me read beginning in the last part of verse 4 of chapter 16. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I'm going to Him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold Me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears. He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take care of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said 
that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. When I was considering which school to go to for my training to become a pastor, I'd graduated with my undergraduate degree from a state university and I was seeking the Lord on where I should go to school. I sought out the counsel of my pastor and he told me about his school. It was Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And as I prayed about it, made a visit to the seminary, decided that's where God wanted me to come as well. He had talked to me a lot about one professor in particular. That professor's name, Roy Fish. It's a good name for a professor of evangelism. He was a fisher of men, literally. But Mr. Roy Fish had an earned doctorate in the field of church history, and he had pinpointed in his curriculum, which he taught on the subjects of various parts of evangelism, he studied very carefully the great spiritual awakenings in the history of the church, beginning with Pentecost and going forward. And what he discovered was, without exception, every time there was a movement where people came in mass, as it were, to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit was at the very center of such movements. It was He who started the fire burning. But normally, almost always, it was in response to the prayer of God's people for a spiritual awakening. In the 19th century, there was a man by the name of Reuben A. Torrey. Dr. Torrey was a great pastor, and at the same time, he was a great man of God. He loved the Lord so much and loved the Word of God. And one time in one of his books on the Holy Spirit, he talks about when he was pastoring the Chicago Avenue Church in Chicago, one of his men, probably an elder, came to him and said, Pastor, I've been sensing the Lord wants us to pray for a spiritual awakening in our church. Well, the pastor found that to be music to his ears, and he and this man met for prayer, and the, the numbers grew, and it was not long before they were seeing things happen in the sense of Holy Spirit moving in the hearts of people, and many people became followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. One man in particular was chosen by Dr. Torrey to illustrate the importance of our, as a church, praying for people to come to know Christ and for there to be a precursor of that by a movement of God's Spirit in answer to the prayers of God's people. He talked about one man who came on a Sunday night to a Sunday night service. He said he'd never seen the man before. He was one of the more well-dressed people who had ever come and worship in the church which he pastored. He was a man who obviously had money. His fingers had rings of gold and diamonds. He had a, a diamond pen that we, we would call it a tack pen long ago, a tie tack. Some of you remember those days. And it was a big diamond on it. He went over and introduced himself afterwards after he had preached, and he would noticed the man was rather squeamish. He was concentrating, but he couldn't sit still in his seat. 
he talked to him and the man broke into tears. And he said, I have come to your place to worship tonight for the first time and something is happening to me which I do not understand. That something was a someone. It was the Holy Spirit of God who convinced him, convicted him of the fact that he needed something to be done with his sin, with, with his righteousness, which was centered in his own effort, as well as something having to do with the judgment of God. He was sensing the judgment of God upon him. Not because Dr. Torrey had preached a message, actually, on the judgment of God, but when God begins to work in a person's heart. It's a miracle. And people are changed. And a lot of time, we don't see that kind of conversion. Occasionally, I'll see a person who comes to know Christ and gives evidence of believing in Christ who has that kind of deep, deep longing that's only capable of being met by the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit speaks to that person about his or her need for the Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage of Scripture, let's go back to verse 4 for a moment. <clears throat> I'm going to do some running interpretation here as we work our way through this passage of Scripture before we get to the two main ideas in the Scripture. And these ideas, let me go ahead and give them to you if you're taking notes. The first one is that the Holy Spirit shows the world what's wrong with it. What's wrong with the world. Only the Holy Spirit can do that to individuals. And by observation, you would draw this conclusion, people populate the world. And remember, when we're looking at the concept of the world in the Bible, primarily it's not about the globe, which we inhabit with 8 billion other people. It's talking about a system in the world that has been organized and it is led by the ruler of this world, as he is described by John in 1 John chapter 5, that it would be Satan himself. So people in the world, whether they know it, and this is not flattering, and it's not meant to be unkind in any way, but if a person is in the world, that person has ultimately Satan as his master. Now, it doesn't mean that that person has any manifestation of demonic activity in that person's life, but it could be the case. But what we know is that the world is organized in rebellion against God. And the Holy Spirit's going to show us in this passage how the world is wrong and teach us what Holy Spirit has to say to the world. And the second main idea is this, that the Holy Spirit... He also has something to show the church as the right path to travel in order to serve Christ fully. So let's dive right in. Verse 4, the last sentence. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Jesus has been giving a discourse, a teaching on the inevitability of we, in following Christ, encountering difficulty. In the book of 2 Timothy, 
4.12, the Bible says, or 3.12, I think it is, says this, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, I've claimed a lot of promises in the Bible, but I haven't claimed that one. I'm not looking to be persecuted, but part and parcel of being a man who is seeking God, I can expect certain levels of persecution, ridicule, intolerance, all kinds of things. That should not catch us off guard. It's part of God's plan to help us to give a very clear testimony of how believers are to deal with such rejection and difficulty and give the picture of wor- the world a picture of what a believer in Christ really is when it comes to being rejected by people in the world. So, Jesus is here speaking about things that he had held off telling these 11 men. And it makes good sense that he would. Not because he was trying to pull the wool over their eyes about what they might expect as they followed Christ. Not at all. But they were babies in the Lord, mind you. And so he wanted to give them a foundation that would be solid enough when he finally did break the news in its fullness. If you read the other Gospels, what you'll discover is this is not the first time in the history of Jesus' association with these 11 men that he had talked about difficulty or persecution or tribulation. Various words are used. Not the first time, but this is the first time, and it's right before he's going to be ultimately persecuted. It's just a few hours from this discourse that he's going to be arrested and taken away to be mistried. It was a kangaroo court which he stood before. The verdict was rendered. It was a trumped-up charge against him, and the people were up to no good who were supposed to be fair judges They laid the hammer down on Jesus. He went to the cross, suffered the ignominy of the cross, all the things associated with it, the humiliation, the incredible pain. He suffered separation from His own Father, God, for what seemed like an eternity to Him. Jesus was suspended between time and eternity. And He was experiencing all the pain all the judgment for the sin of mankind when He died on the cross. Unbelievable what Christ did in that situation. But when we come to this place, Jesus is finally giving a clearer picture. And if you didn't come last week or you've forgotten what I said or it wasn't worth remembering, you can read it again. You won't go bad reading the Word of God. So look at verse 5 of John 16. But now I'm going to Him who sent me. Who would that be, by the way? Who sent Jesus into the world? God the Father. And none of you asks me, where are you going? This bothered Jesus. Because He was excited about going where He came from. And He had talked about having gone to the Father. He also had spoken to them. This should have been some, of some interest to them. This may be why He was bothered more is because over in chapter 14, if you want to take a quick look, verse 2, he says, 
In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. It doesn't say you, you know the place, you know the way I'm going. And Jesus, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Look at chapter 14, verse 28. Jesus speaks more about where he's going and what the proper response of his apostles should be to the destination that he's headed to. These men were in deep depression. Jesus wanted them to refocus their orientation to get their eye on the destination of Christ. Jesus had some business to take care of, didn't he, in between this teaching and his being raised from the dead and eventually ascending back to heaven to be with his Father where he had been in eternity prior to his becoming one of us. He had the ordeal of the cross, but he was looking forward to going back where he came from place of perfection, a place where there's no tear, there is no depression, there is no sorrow. And let me just mention this before I forget it. Do you know we can have a slice of heaven? And let me go and say it a little differently. I don't want to misrepresent the truth here. We do have a part of heaven living in us if we know Jesus. Because Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Not will have eternal life, but has it right now. And therefore, we are the recipients of that kind of life in this life. We don't have to go around like poor beggars as it relates to a wholesome, healthy, spiritual life because of the presence of the Lord I asked Jesus to read from John chapter 7. Jesus is at a feast, the Feast of Booths, which was the most popular of all the feasts of the seven feasts of Israel on an annual basis, celebrated in Jerusalem. And he said, with a loud voice, by the way, it's the only time Jesus is ever described as lifting his voice. And this is what he said. He said, if anyone is thirsty, and by the way, the word thirsty means, is anyone got a, a, a thirst that goes on and on and on? So put that in your brain and think about it a minute. If anyone is thirsty, let that person come to me. And here again, the word come is ongoing visitation to Jesus. If anyone has this insatiable thirst and keeps on coming to me, and he's speaking about spiritual thirst, some thirst that cannot be quenched by any facet of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life. If anyone has that insatiable thirst, have you ever had such thirst that you couldn't get enough water to drink? Has that ever happened to you? The closest it ever came to me is when I was playing football, and I didn't have much of a career playing football, but
But one thing that really stands out to me is at the end of every day, our coach, by the way, would not let us have water. This would be unacceptable today. We got no water from the time we hit the field until the time we were done with practice. We were always in practice with running wind sprints. And we ran probably 15 or 20 a day full gear. We were exhausted in a high humidity climate in Tennessee. And we couldn't, we were whining and crying during the running. But when we were let loose, one of the biggest guys on the team and best athlete really on our team, he went on to play offensive line for the University of Alabama. Carl Douglas was his name. He's going to be with the Lord now. But he was last in the sprints. It was amazing and more belly aching than anybody. But you know what he did? He jogged, if not went into a semi-sprint, all the way to the gym to get a thirst-quenching drought of cold water. And that was for me too. That's the kind of thirst. Think about the most thirsty moment in your life. If anyone is thirsty, let him or her come to me and drink. And here again, the word drink is not a one-time concept. It's a lifestyle. A lifestyle of thirstiness for the Lord and His way. A lifestyle of coming to Him and drinking. And out of His or her innermost being, that would be your spirit. Out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And what do you suppose those living streams are for? Well, if you have been reading in your map journal in the book of Ezekiel, you know that the temple is depicted in the new heaven and the new earth. Remember that depiction? And how water starts coming out from under the threshold, you know? And then before long, it's ankle deep, then it's knee deep, then it's waist deep, and then it's all the way up here, and it turns into a river. And on the banks of the river, what does Ezekiel find? Trees. What kind of trees? Fruit trees. And it says trees of every kind. And what that would suggest to you and to me is that the Lord is going to give us as His people not only the mission to bear fruit, we've been talking about that and studying this in John 15, but He will give us the fruit if we understand what we're studying here today. We're going to get to that. What does it mean to come and drink of the Spirit? It means to come to Him in humility and tell Him, I know you have what I need for fulfillment, but not to be spent simply on myself. Yes, the person who becomes one out of whom flow flows rivers of water, that's going to help us. It's like my pastor used to say, hey, men, we are just conduits. We're a pipe to get the water, the living water out of us in our hearts into other people's lives because it's transformational. And he went on to say, but you know what, men? He says this. Jesus, my pastor said about this. Jesus lets the water run through the pipe too. And we get the benefit of that, don't we? But it's not the primary focus. 
It's that we come and we drink. And that's what the Lord wants for you and for me in this life. The church, we who make it up, as we're going to see today, Holy Spirit has come to indwell us. But not only is He indwelling us, He's going to empower us. But before we do this, I want to, before I go too long, I want to talk about what the Holy Spirit shows the world. First of all, it shows it where it's wrong. And it, He does this. Let's look at back on chapter 16. Go back there for a moment. Let's read uh, verse 7. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. It's hard to imagine it would be to their advantage. And they had the hard time with it. And I would have too. Because after all, this is the Messiah. And they have the understanding that He's not simply Messiah. He is God in the flesh. And all of a sudden, He says, I'm out of here in just a few hours, and I'm going to pass the baton to someone else to be with you. He goes on to say in verse 7, For I do not go away. If I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. What could be better? Let me ask you the question. What could be better than having Jesus with you or with me? Unbelievable. Jesus said, it is better to have the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to split hairs here at all. But it, it would be at least equal because both of them are God. And the thing that makes it more advantageous for Jesus to go away, and where did He go to? Back to heaven. And what place did He occupy when He got to heaven? He sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And what is He doing right now for me and for you? The Bible says in Hebrews 7.25, now He lives to make intercession for us. He pleads our cause to the Father whenever the devil, who is described in the Bible as the accuser of the brothers, why does Jesus have to pray day and night? Because Satan continues to accuse you and me after we have been transformed and we are new creatures in Christ, as Jesus said in his prayer to the Lord. We're new in Christ. We're indwelled by the Spirit. We have the power to overcome those forces of the world and not be in any way ruled by them. So, we are people who know Jesus, and we know Him by the Spirit, and the Spirit's with us. You're leaving this room in about 35 minutes. When you leave, if you know Jesus, He's going with you. You go to the restaurant, He's there with you. Go to the gym, He's there with you. Go to your house, He's there with you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. That's amazing, isn't it? When we get together as a church, Holy Spirit's here. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being here. Thank you for coming and living in my life and the life of these dear ones who know you. Help us to understand what that means. The Holy Spirit shows the world where it's wrong. It's wrong. Look here, verse... Eight, and He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Then He goes into more detail about these three facets of where the wrong, world is wrong concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Here's the world's conception of sin, if it has a conception at all. 
there are religious people in the world who do not know God because they have been misled, hoodwinked into thinking if they can do certain religious things, the doing of those religious things will eventuate in their knowing God and having eternal life. Now, I'm not under any delusion when it comes about good works. The Bible says faith without works is what? Dead. The Bible also says we who know Christ are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Notice the sequence, however. In the verses right before that verse from Ephesians 2.10, that we are God's workmanship, the word workmanship translates a word that sounds like this in the original language, poema. Do you hear an English word in there? Poems. We're God's poems. We're His delicate works of art in Christ Jesus. The Bible says right before that verse that we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works which He prepared in advance for us to do. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one will boast. Good works are the fruit of the root of faith by grace. God saves us not because of anything inherently good in us, but because He chooses to save us. Aren't you glad? Do you ever ponder, Lord, why would you choose me? Do you ever feel that way? Certainly, if you've given it much thought, you have. So the world's idea of sin is not doing certain things and doing certain things. Now, don't, don't let me lose you right here. I know there are things I'm not to do. I also know there are things I ought to do. This is part of following Christ too. But we get the cart before the horse if we're not careful, and we can end up being pharisaical. And Jesus had His harshest words for men who were followers of the Pharisees who believed that they were the most devout of all people because they kept all 500 plus laws, most of which they added to the law of Moses. And they had built what they thought was an airtight argument for their being accepted into heaven. So we need to understand that their idea of sin is a lot like people's idea. Sin, and notice where he says concerning sin. Why? Because they do not believe in me. The bottom line of your sin is a lack of faith in the Lord. That's it. A lack of faith in Jesus. The Bible says in Romans 14, 23, whatever is not of faith is sin. And the Bible says in also the Scripture, it talks us about without faith it's impossible to please God in Hebrews, the 11th chapter. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ, the Bible says in Romans 10, 17. We hear Christ speak just like these men had heard Christ speak. And we follow Christ and we put our faith in Christ. If we get that right, everything else begins to fall into place. doesn't mean that the Lord's going to open the Bible for you in the morning and put it the place He wants you to read. 
He has given us the Word of God, and we open the Scripture, and God's Holy Spirit teaches us and corrects us and guides us. We're going to see more about this. So, here is the sin of the world. It's rejecting Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, knowing that nothing they can do can make themselves right with God. It's strictly Christ's work on our behalf. Believing in Jesus, wholeheartedly, yielding to Him with a whole heart. Have you done that before? Have you yielded yourself fully to the Lord Jesus Christ? The Spirit also shows the world what's really right. Look at verse 10. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold Him. Well, the first part's rather simple to understand. Righteousness would be what the Bible says is right. Simple. Righteousness. And if we adhere to the Scripture, we might think we're righteous. But what has to become paramount? What has to precede that? I must put my faith in Christ alone. Not my good works, my baptism, my taking communion. All those things are significant. The Scripture speaks about them. But those are things that happen after I give my life to Christ, not preparatory to my giving my life. And we need to have that in mind. We must be people who understand that Jesus Christ becomes our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says as much, Jesus Christ is your righteousness. If you know Christ, the Bible says you're in Christ. And Christ is in you. We have this wonderful relationship where He shares His perfection with our lives. He wipes the slate clean as far as any kind of penal judgment, court-like judgment upon us because He took the punishment in full measure for your sins and for mine. And that is enacted if and only if We trust in Him alone for eternal life. We are looking at this passage one more time, and it kind of made me scratch my head when I saw the second part of this. The first part of the first statement concerning sin because they do not believe in me, that's not too hard to understand, is it? But look at this conclusion of verse 10. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father... That's okay, because Jesus is pleading our case, isn't He? And He's perfectly righteous, and you no longer behold Me. Well, He was going to be out of the picture, but there's something here for us today to think about. Where do we get a picture of Jesus Christ? Where do we go to get the most clear understanding of who Jesus Christ is? We go to the Word of God, right? We go to the Scripture. And God speaks to us. He paints a picture. Holy Spirit actually paints a picture for us of the person of Jesus Christ. And if you read the Bible at all with a heart to hear so that you can hear the voice of Christ, not audibly with these ears, but the ears of your heart, and you can see Him not with your physical eyes, but with your spiritual eyes. This is why Paul says... In his prayer in Ephesians 1, he says, I pray that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened. 
We're blind until we receive Christ. When Christ comes in, He enables us to see Him. And we're to be living by faith, not sight. Isn't that true? Isn't that what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5? We're to live by faith and not by sight. Trusting in Christ exclusively. A little help to me is make an acronym out of the word faith. Forsaking all, I trust Him. That's what real faith is. Forsaking everything else, I trust Jesus Christ. There is an objectivity to this process of developing a deeper understanding of who Christ is, therefore who we are in Christ, therefore how we have righteousness that's not the making of our own effort, but it is the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And that objectivity is to be found in the Scripture. Who wrote the Bible? There are 66 books which make up our Bible. Now you may say, Mike, I'm sorry, I can't name every author in the Bible. I'm not asking who the human authors were. Credit to the Holy Spirit for picking the right people in whom He gave insight and the drive, the inspiration, if you will. Expiration is actually the word that's used by Paul in 2 Timothy 3. That all scriptures God breathed, it's expired from God, it comes from God. But he spoke it into the hearts of people and they wrote it down. I'm talking about when we think about who authored the scripture, it was Holy Spirit. First chapter of 2 Peter, the last two verses of the first chapter, verses speak that much, that it was He, the Holy Spirit, who moved the people who wrote the Scripture to put it on paper or parchment or animal skins or whatever the surface was. God worked. It's a beautiful thing when He gave us the Bible. And objectively, we have... And I wish I had a, an opportunity to give you a whole lecture on the trustworthiness of Scripture. This is the most, by far, I mean to the nth degree, farther reliable than any book of antiquity. If you do research into the science of textual criticism, is an exact science. There are certain steps to follow to determine if a document found in antiquity is a reliable document. This book is far and away, I'm talking about the New Testament and the Old Testament, than any other book in antiquity. And that is encouraging to me. If there were only one copy of it, the Holy Spirit was the author of it, it would still have the impact I'm talking about in its original. And there was only one document, but as people got those documents, what they did is they wanted to share them with others. And I would have too, wouldn't you? It's revolutionary what I'm reading and I want others to get it. And people would take great pains to copy it. And they didn't have the kind of conveniences and kind of contraptions we have today that would help that and give it to somebody else. But the Lord preserved that for us. It's a miracle. The book is a miracle in its content Holy Spirit inspired it in its preservation. Unbelievable. And if you want to read a good book on the subject, read a book by a man with the last name of Bruce. And 
his title of the book is Are the New Testament Records Reliable? And they really are. You'll see it. It's not too hard to read. Then also subjectively, how can the world here in verse 10 see Jesus? They can see it in the church. They can see it in us as individuals. But in the church, the way we are, are we like Christ? Are we people individually and collectively who are living by faith in the resurrection Christ who is seated at the right hand of God and He is living His life in us and He is expressing Himself through us and there's a difference. Now that difference aggravates the devil. He hates it. He hates us. He hates us because He hates Jesus. Remember what Jesus says? We saw it last week in chapter 15. If the world hates you, know it hated me before it hated you. And who is the ruler of this world, by the way? Jesus speaks of Him in John 12, 31 and in John 14, 30 and certainly in 1 John. And He hates us because He hates God. But the good news is He cannot touch us without permission of God. You remember Job? Remember how God was in heaven and His created beings were around Him and one was Satan. And Satan was asked by God, where you been? What you been doing? I've been on the earth walking to and fro. That's the devil. And he's restless. He's restless. He, he can't sit still. <clears throat> he's always worrying about the next thing we're going to look at in a moment, his judgment. It's coming. He hates it when we share Christ with people. I think he hates it worse than anything else. The Bible says, I saw, we saw this last week from Romans 15, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring what? Good news. Because when we bring the good news, when we share a witness to Christ, if everyone in this room before the day was over shared a witness to Jesus Christ, wow, you'd be surprised how many people would be interested and also some would come to know Christ. It's just a matter of our stepping out in dependence and faith and being the church that Jesus would have us to be. Here's the third thing about what the... Spirit shows us as it shows the world about itself. Now I've already talked about it, that God's already won the victory. Jesus already won the victory over the devil. It's kind of like D-Day. It's already won. There's still a lot of skirmishes going on, but it's pretty well done. The church's message must be victory in Jesus. And this is what we are told in the book of 1 Corinthians. The biggest enemy we have is death. Most people say, well, I'm not afraid to die. Well, wait till you get in a pinch physically and see if you still have that kind of confidence if you don't know Christ. We shouldn't be afraid to die if we know Jesus. We should be excited to go be with Him. Just as Jesus was excited to return to His Father, we should be too. But the Bible says this about our relationship to death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And who took the stinger, by the way? Did any of you, when you were a child, catch honeybees? 
that was a, probably the most enjoyable pastime boys my age when we were about six or eight years old we got a, a jar and somebody poked with a ice pick in the top of that old ball jar you remember that those metal deals and we'd catch our bees and we would do all kinds of things to them but every once in a while they got us and they stung us and that was no fun right Jesus Christ when he died on the cross if you read Hebrews 2 it indicates this too that He took the stinger. Oh, death, where is your victory? He took the devil's stinger and He took our sin upon Himself. And what I noticed about those honeybees, once they let go of their stinger into me or somebody else, they died. The devil is on a destiny course for not extinction, but where he will spend eternity in the lake of fire and pay over and over. Oh, death, where's your victory? Yes. Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. What did Jesus do with the law, by the way? As I recall, he was perfect in the keeping of it. We are imperfect. He was perfect. Every jot and every tittle of the law of Moses he conformed to. Doing for us what we could not do. And this is why the Bible says God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. So, we don't have to worry. You know, the victory is ours. And in 1 John 5, 4, the Scripture says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. What is the object of our faith? A better way of asking the question, who is the object of our faith? It's none other and only Jesus Christ. When we trust in Him and say, I surrender to You, Lord. You created me in the first place. You have a plan for me. I'm looking forward to getting in on that plan. Would you please forgive me, Lord, and take me into your care and your vanguard of those who reach out to the world who does not know Christ. So, first thing we spent a long time on. You've been very patient. But let me go ahead and say it again. The Holy Spirit shows the world where it has gone wrong. But the Holy Spirit shows the church what is the right path to travel in service to Christ. And the broader outline, this is the broader idea, and I'm going to go ahead and say it, and we're going to look at the rest of this passage in quick order. By means of the whole truth. Half-truths are lies. Would you agree? Because they're mixed up with lies. The only place we find pure and adulterated truth is in the Scripture. So look, Verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, notice, Jesus speaks of Holy Spirit as a person, not a force. He is a person with great power, but He's God. And when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into how much truth? All the truth. What is truth? Jesus says clarifying for that. Remember Pilate 
was musing when he was trying Jesus and finally sentencing to die. He says, what is truth? And truth was right before him, personified in Jesus. But Jesus says to the Father in John 17, 17, sanctify them, that means put them in the right place, talking about us who know Jesus. Use, use them, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The Bible is the truth of God's truth. It's the Word. And we get in the Word, and God teaches us. Holy Spirit, we've already seen as our teacher in chapter 14, 26. When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. Here's a great verse. Many of you could quote it, and if you haven't learned it, it's a simple one. Psalm 119, 105. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, and 105 is a little over halfway through it. It says this, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Holy Spirit uses the word of God to put us on a pathway that leads to His being honored, Jesus Christ being properly represented in our lives really are designed to live. Now let's look a little further in verse 13. He that is the Holy Spirit will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Who do you suppose tells Holy Spirit what to speak? We know from John 5, in more than one place, Jesus says, the Father tells me what to speak. Well, the Father could tell the Holy Spirit what to speak too, but it's likely that Jesus is telling the Holy Spirit what to speak from the Word. And so we listen to the Holy Spirit in the Scripture. We're hearing the voice of God, God the Father, God the Son, and yes, God the Holy Spirit. They're co-equal and co-eternal according to the Scripture. He, he will speak and He will disclose to you what is to come. Now pay careful attention in the next two verses. He closes each of these three statements about the Lord as the Spirit of God communicating to the church, keeping putting us on the right path and our following. He will disclose to you what is to come. He's talking about after this life and in between the time that Jesus leaves them in the body and before their lives end and they go to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Look at 14. He shall glorify me. Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. We talked about that last week in John 15, 26, and 27. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine, that would be what I have, everything, and shall disclose it to you. And then look at verse 15. All things that the Father has are mine, Therefore I said that he takes of mine. So what the Father has given to Jesus, who has access to it? Holy Spirit. What Jesus has innate in his own being, he, it's his, but what does he do? He shares it with Holy Spirit. They share all these beautiful truths about what it means to be a child of God in process, going from a baby in Christ to growing and growing. Look, you don't become fully mature overnight. It takes a while. And that bothers some people. You are perfect in Christ from God's 
point of view, you will never be punished for your sin. Christ punished, was punished for your sin. All of it. Not part of it, but all of it. But the Lord gives us time to grow. Aren't you glad? Not so we can goof off and be undisciplined and sin if we want to. Not at all. But so we can deal with the things we see along the way. When I first started coming to the Lord, I was about really getting serious. I was about late 21, early 22. I could not get enough of reading the Bible. I wanted to read it all the time. I didn't even have a good translation and I wanted to read it. Pretty wild. But I was seeing blind spots I had showed up, showed up, showed up. But I, I felt badly about it, but I was taught if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to purify you from all unrighteousness. And so I started practicing that, what Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, described as spiritual breathing. Confessing is like exhaling carbon dioxide, right? And then breathing back in. Holy Spirit, take control of my life. I need to be filled with you. And I have, by God's grace, not perfectly by any means, but when that was taught to me, the light came on about how I could walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. And I lived it. I lived it. Sometimes along the way, I went adrift, got off the path, started dabbling in the world again. Anybody ever dabble in the world? And you, you, gotta, you, kinda, you know, you got your foot over here in Christ and over here it's the world. Right? And then you're not comfortable. You like sin for a while. The Bible says sin is pleasant. But the rest of the sentence says for a while. Not permanently. And so the way we get over that hump is what? We yield to the Lord and we keep coming back. And we, when we disobey the Lord, and what I've also numbered, remembered, and it's witnessed in the, cry, in, the, in the Scripture about Paul's speaking of his relationship to Christ. He said at the end of his life now, I don't think he was just becoming an old sympathetic man. He said, I am the chief of sinners. Really? You're the chief of sinners? Paul, didn't you say 15 years ago that you were the least of the apostles? You've really fallen way down the ladder when you say I'm the chief sinner. And then, Paul, maybe about five or six years ago, didn't you say I am the chief of the... I'm the least of the saints. I'm the least of the apostles. Now, he downgrades himself to saints. Is he just being overly modest? He's saying what he was sensing in his own life. And this is why. Listen carefully. When you listen to the Lord regularly, and you've dealt with a lot of sins in your life that have burdened you down, other things begin to show up. Attitudes primarily. Attitudes toward people, Attitudes toward feeling better than other people, not really focusing on the grace of God. I'll never forget reading a book about a man who he and his family bought a little piece of ground in New Hampshire and there are mountains there and they went to clear off the stones. They go once a month on a weekend. Mother, dad, and two teenage children. They 
were preparing it to put a structure up on it, and they said the, he said the oddest thing happened. We would remove all these stones that were visible, and when we came back in another month, there were more stones. We wondered who was coming and putting them on our ground. We wanted to shoot them if we found them. He didn't say that, so that's probably the way he felt. But there were ground, underground there were these rocks which were coming to the surface because they were held down by the bigger stones. This is not uncommon when you come to Christ. Don't let it make you feel like you are not getting it. Just confess them to the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to fill you again, to take control of you again. Well, this is a lot to digest today, but it's well worth your going back over it, reading it, thinking about it, being prepared for next week when we come and we'll finish up, God willing, the 16th chapter of John. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we ask You to fill us. I ask You to fill me, Lord. Take control of me. Produce the fruit of the Spirit in my life. And I pray for our church that we be a church that's known as being a church that is full of the Spirit, showing forth the fruit of the Spirit. And then also, we pray we would see more people be born again through our church's witness, not going out on the street. Lord, if that's what You want us to do, we're welcome. we welcome that. Help us to be alert, though, when we're in non-official settings and You bring people into our lives whom You have prepared for the Gospel. Help us to be ready to give an answer to them so that they can come to know You too. Bring the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon elements of the world around us and some people who come here are seekers. Thank You for bringing people who are seeking, Lord. Help them to know You as we have been privileged to come to know You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.